So welcome to the Critical Alpha podcast and we've got Chris Hewitt as our guest today. Welcome, Chris. Thanks, Aaron. So, Chris, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, yes, yeah, well, I, I'm a communications coach now and it started probably about 10 years ago for me. I write and perform poetry on stage and I have always written creatively, but it was about uh, 2009 when I started sharing it with people regularly. And in 2010, I had my first paid gig performing poetry at a market in Canberra. And I was standing on an upturned milk crate next to a big fig tree performing in a, in a courtyard. And when I finished um, and sort of dismounted my milk crate, this gentle older woman comes up to me and she says, so how are you going to use your poetry to change the world? And um, uncharacteristically for me, I was lost for words and I didn't know what, what to say. But th that stuck in my head because at, at that stage, uh, I'd only been doing this sharing poetry for about a year, a year. I was working for Lockheed Martin as a business development manager. Because right. I'd been in the Air Force for 20 years as a, an F-18 pilot and instructor. Then I left and did some consulting for a while. I worked on the Super Hornet project. And then I moved to Lockheed Martin to help them win the pilot training system for the Australian Defence Force. Wow. And uh, that was the job that I was in when I, I was approached by this woman. Five years later, we won that project. So I'd achieved the goal that I joined Lockheed Martin for. And uh, I was rewriting my CV, trying to find my story. And when I actually looked at it all, looked at all the things that I did and that I loved, I realised that it was communication that united all of them. So whether that was helping someone learn a new skill or it was listening to someone's problems and coming up with ways to solve them or pitching an idea and a business development sense to get somebody to, to take your, your solution as a, as a winning solution. As well as that, I realised that the creative uh, communication side, the poetry side, was really important to me, but it was a sort of a side thing at the time, completely separate from my work. And if I brought all of these things together, then that would be the thing that actually really excited me about working with other people and, and made me uh, really satisfied when I can do that, when I can communicate with others, help people learn things and listen to people. And so that's why I started my own company and, and do what I do now, which is helping others communicate better, drawing all, on all of that experience as a pilot, an instructor, a consultant and, and a poet. So having that creative side as well as the business and the technical communication all in one, in one job. It sounds like um, that, was, that was the catalyst, that moment yes. in time when that person approached you. Yeah, well, I finally realised, well, hey, actually, this is how I can use my poetry to change the world. Yep. Maybe only it's one person at a time, but uh, I'm still making a difference in other people's lives because communication is so important. And I don't think the examples we get from our leaders right now are very good. And uh, I think we can always communicate better and connect with other people better. And yep. I, I love helping people do that. Is that your high level goal for the future in terms of what you're looking to achieve is make an impact on the wider, wider world? I, I, I quite um, modest in my objectives, I think is if I, if I can make, uh, the individuals that I work with, if I can make their communication more effective, make them feel more connected to other people, then I would be very happy. If that joins with other people who are doing similar work and creates a movement so that we can actually be better communicators and we get better leaders and, and people better are able to motivate and, and um, bring us together, 
then yeah. I think that would be fantastic. But uh, that would be the sort of the, the way out in the future in Nirvana. That might be my vision. The mission right now yeah. is just to change you know, <laughs> one person's communication skills. Where does your background in aviation as a fighter pilot come in to uh, what you do now? There's several areas, I think, and, and, and some of these would overlap with your experience as well. Uh, being in the services, in, in the military, you definitely build a, a feeling of uh, taking on responsibility yourself, doing things yourself and making a difference. Uh, the, my experience as an instructor has definitely helped me with adult learning and realising how people learn and helping people develop new skills. And as a fighter pilot, a lot of the structure and presentation of information, yeah. I, I draw on my experience as a, a, a pilot in, in the way that you would put together information and then share it with other people in a briefing, the way you would draw information out of other people in a debriefing. I use all of those structural formal skills mm -hmm. that I developed as a, a fighter pilot and an instructor. How, how critical was getting it right as uh, as a fighter pilot yes it is uh it was essential to bring everybody together when you briefed before a mission so that you all collectively knew what your goal was what you had to do when and what you would do if certain things happened yeah so yes that communication was very important when you're actually in the air we used very strict forms of communication so that People knew exactly what you were saying and, and the chance of being misunderstood was less likely. Yeah. Uh, so that was very important. I don't know how applicable that is to common conversation, uh, yeah. but being aware of the risk of miscommunication because you are using words in different ways is definitely yeah. something that draw from that experience. And then getting it right after you'd been flying and drawing out of other people what happens so that you could learn lessons. Yeah. and improve the next time. And I think that's a really important part that uh, I bring to coaching people in communication skills is to encourage them to do that debrief part, that reflection that we don't often do when we, you know, we kick ourselves. We went, oh, that conversation went really badly. <laughs> and you don't stop to think, okay, so what are the things that I could do better next time and take note of them? So that's another really key part that uh, I think is important for us to do is to identify those lessons. And how often would you do a debrief? Is that after every mission? Yes. Yeah. Right. Every time we flew, we would brief before we flew and we would debrief yeah. when we came back. And most of the time, the time spent planning, briefing and debriefing was two to four times as long as the time we spent in the air. Wow. So how often would a, well, that's a leading question, but would you ever get a flight perfect? as planned no i've not in my experience wow okay. there were always things to learn and even if we achieved our objective we would still try to find things that we could do better so that we could achieve that better that fit sorry achieve that objective more efficiently or in a, a better way next time uh, that's the epitome of i guess um, safety management i know that it wasn't always like that uh, perhaps from the 80s but it sounds like that um, that culture is well embedded now in the in the aviator space anyway there's definitely a, a culture of a no blame culture so in when you debriefed you would work out what happened you wouldn't use people's individual names you'd use call signs to sort of separate it from the individual 
yeah. you would be very open about what went well and what didn't go so well. Yeah. And then you would work out ways to improve it rather than dwelling on the fact that someone made a mistake. Yeah. And uh, I think, yes, that, that we would apply to flying safety as well. So if something went wrong that risked uh, lives or, or equipment, then we would drill into the reason why and then do things to avoid it happening again rather than focusing on... Yeah, you mentioned a no-blame uh, culture earlier. And how, how important is that to... Um, communicating openly and what element of that is leveraged from relationships? Yeah, that's, that's, uh, I think the relationships that we had in that environment were unique because that was the culture that we came up in yeah. uh, and was definitely encouraged to be very open about what went wrong and what didn't go uh, and, and what went well. Yep. And so it was, it was a little bit easier to be that way because we had that relationship of trust and openness with each other. We're coming from the same position. Um, it is challenging to do in different environments where you have people from a range of different backgrounds, yep. different roles as well. We all had very similar roles, so that did make it easier. We're a bit more yep. of a homogenous group. Uh, I yep. think when you're coming from different perspectives, the, it is a little bit more challenging. Yep. And sometimes the, there is interpretations and uh, uh, perspectives that vary yep. that were less likely when you just had a bunch of pilots in a room or a bunch of aircrew. But if you're in a, an environment that has a range of different people with different perspectives, then they'll see things differently. So sometimes you need to spend more time understanding each other's perspective before you can then move on to the, so what do we do better next uh, yeah. from a safety perspective and I think from mm -hmm. a communication perspective that's probably the thing that I've learned since I left the Air Force is you've got to spend a lot more time listening to other people to understand their point of view because mm -hmm. you can't assume that they've come from a similar background similar training right. have a similar culture to the way you communicate mm -hmm. you can't assume that you need to Yep. establish that relationship, take a little bit more time to realise where you're both coming from and then find that common ground. Mm. Did it change at all when you went, when you moved up the ranks? I guess as a, as a boggy pilot, you, you sort of have your, your core role as a pilot to con concentrate on and then you start to move into managing teams. Um, did it change how you communicated and do you think looking back uh, it was effective? And I think... Within the Air Force, what happened for me is I, I left when I was commanding officer. So I, I rose up to be the commanding officer of a squadron of 200 people. Yep. And what I did learn in that period is that the people that I had to manage and, and work with did start becoming from a diverse group. So when I was a, a junior pilot, I was mostly working with pilots and air defence controllers and, and other people who are related to that operational mission. As you get to a higher rank as a pilot in the Air Force, as, as you would know, start dealing with engineers and maintainers and <laughs> logisticians yep. and administrators. So yep. having to then be able to be a bit more flexible in the way you speak and listen to other people and, and talk about topics in different ways, mm. not just the way that a fighter pilot would talk about something yep. because that's not going to work yep. nine times out of ten when you're talking to someone who's not a fighter pilot. Yeah, yeah. I guess... Being, being a fighter pilot for so long, it must be easy to slip back into that, um, that mode at, at times for you. Yeah, it's, uh, it's been 13, 14 years now since I was in the Air Force. 
So yeah. it is a bit further back in time. Uh, but I do, when I get together with people that I know, sometimes I find myself falling into old habits and using shorthand and, and uh, expressions that don't use at all in the outside world. Yeah. Uh, so yes, you, you uh, and the, the cliche of uh, you, then everybody starts talking with their hands and flying their hands around. So. <laughs> yeah, I, I can relate. Um, so in that respect, how important is it to learn how others communicate? You, you've been in the, a few different roles since then as well. Um, have you have you picked it up in terms of how others communicate, or is it something that you you've had to go beyond and learn how others communicate to communicate better? I think the, the essential thing is that you start off by thinking about the people you're going to be talking to. Uh, you can't, everybody is different. There are, we all have sort of, do, you can find people who have similar styles of communicating, but even then each person is different and that particular moment is a different moment. So I think it's more important to just start by thinking who am I going to be speaking to today? Where are they in, in their journey? What are the things that they speak about? What will they understand? What do I need to explain? If I yeah. tell a story, how is it going to connect with them? So thinking about that individual or that group of individuals, uh, I think it can be a bit of a risk going in and saying, oh, this is an engineer, so I know he speaks with this communication style and I'll speak that way because that's not always going to work. So I... I I would encourage thinking about the other person. Over time, you do, as you speak to more people, you take the time to reflect on how well your communication went with a certain person from a background, then that will be embedded in your communication over time. And you'll become a better communicator because you've taken time to adjust the way that you speak to connect with another person. In a way, you still spend a lot more time planning before you do a brief or a presentation. And then at the end, you still do that reflection as well to try and learn what went right, what went wrong, and what you could do better, I guess, by the sounds of it. Yes, yeah, all the time. I, yeah. I still do that. And, and uh, so for example, today, I, I spent 15 minutes thinking about what we're going to talk about and, and you and your, your work. And afterwards, I'm gonna take some notes as well about things that I said. I might come up with a brilliant idea <laughs> from just talking out loud to you that I think, oh, I've got to, I've got to save that or I might make it a, a blog post or I'll put it on LinkedIn. Yep. Uh, I will do that uh, with every time I meet someone or talk to someone, try and keep that discipline because I think it's really essential to, to do that, to keep learning yep. uh, and to connect better as well. So the next time I can see you, I see you, I, because I've taken some notes, I'll remember, more likely to remember yeah. something we spoke about and I can bring it up again the next time that we, we meet and talk. So I think it's, it's important to do that, to capture those moments, capture yeah. what you can learn out of them and also capture things that you can use again in the future. What are the common myths surrounding communication? Uh, I don't know if they're myths or things well, that people don't stop to think about, maybe. Um, the, the first thing is that if I have a very clear message in my head and I say it louder and I say it with a, a really strong argument, then I'll be able to convince somebody else to do something. Okay. Uh, okay. And I know many people who believe this, but I see a lot of people who behave like this because they don't stop to think yeah. about it. Um, okay. we, uh, we're all emotional people. Yep. Um, we, we all 
make decisions based on emotion and then try to justify them with logic. So you, you can't go into a, a situation and just stick on logic. You need to take into account ways that you can emotionally connect with the other person. And that might be as simple as establishing some level of trust. So that could be talking about your credentials and so they can, they know, okay, so I, now I trust you. And then when you give your logic, they know where you're coming from. But more often you need to put a, an emotional reason as well. Tell a story, give it a, an emotional example of something and have then the logic, the data, the facts back up that story, support that story. And yeah. those two things together will help convince, persuade another person. Yeah. And essential in that is thinking about the person you're talking to. So when I mentioned before, start off by thinking of your audience. Mm-hmm. It's not your message you need to think of first. You need to think about your audience first. Yeah. Then think about your message, but how do you convey that message in a way that's going to connect with your audience? I, I don't know if that's a myth, but I think that's a, a very common error that I see when people communicate. What are, the, what are some of the roadblocks you've seen when people are trying to learn how to be better as public speakers? I, th- I think one of the, the most common roadblocks is this feeling that um, you can't get better. There's a, um, some people just say, I'm no good at public speaking or I hate public speaking or public speaking terrifies me. And that then just stops people from actually getting better at it. And I was only just recently talking to someone about rehearsal, practicing before you then have to speak in front of others. Yeah. And even the feeling of rehearsal has that same, I, I hate public speaking. So you don't rehearse. And the consequence of that is that you then, if you're forced to get up and do that public speaking, you you feel even more anxious and nervous because you haven't practiced it. You haven't seen the fact that you can speak well. You haven't um, seen that you actually do all right when you've you've practiced and prepared and give it a go. You you do, you can speak well. And I think that uh, that's the biggest roadblock is to get people to actually prepare, face, that fear, rehearse in front of a friendly audience, and then gradually over time improve. You don't have to get it right every time, but it's a, it is a gradual process, but you do need to start. And that's probably the roadblock that I see is people don't start because they just say that they're terrible at it. They avoid it. Yeah. So what sort of resources have you tapped, to in, tapped into personally to improve your speaking skills? I mean, you did say earlier that as a fighter pilot, it's very different to then transitioning to maybe private sector. It's interesting that you went into a business development role. That's very much a high level sales um, marketing type role. How did you sort of make that transition? I was very fortunate that I went to consulting first. So uh, I had done a, a master's of management when I was in the air force. Yeah. through Defence Academies, and fortunately that, that supported me through that. And uh, I'd done a little bit of work in a project office, so I'd done s- some project management work and, and management work. I didn't think I was going to get a better job than being the CEO of a squadron, so that's why I chose to leave at that time, and I went to consulting because I wanted to put into practice some of that managerial uh, experience that I'd had. And when I did that, I ended up working on the Super Hornet project for three years as a contractor which gave me a really broad range of experience, but it meant that I was on that side of the fence. I was still working for Air Force, but I, I still had to 
um, earn, a, earn a living yeah. and work for a commercial organization. Yeah. And then the next step was to go to Lockheed Martin. So it was a, that, a step further away from defense to the other side of the fence, selling yeah. things directly to defense. And uh, that progression helped me get more comfortable with being uh, in a suit and having to make money. And, uh, but my experience in the Air Force gave me a good understanding of what the customer, in this case, the Australian Defence Force, and particularly the Air Force, yeah. needed in our pilot training system. Yeah. So uh, I was lucky in that way. It, is, it can be hard to be one day in uniform and the next day uh, working for a contractor, a, a prime contractor. Yeah. Uh, and I was lucky to be able to, to take that as in two steps. How important is it to uh, maintain networks in that perspective? Uh, really important. Uh, that business development in particular is a really long game. Uh, it's, not, it's not really like sales. So it's not going making sales calls every day and trying mm. to meet your monthly numbers. Yeah. It, it is a very long game and it requires, uh, it relies on you speaking to people all the time, finding people who might be good partners for your solution, yeah. finding ideas of the ways to make your solution better, understanding the customer's need better, uh, making sure the customer is aware of what your company can do and takes that into consideration when they're coming up with how to acquire this new capability. So those connections are essential. So having those conversations is really what business development is, is all about. Uh, so yes, that, that, those networks are, are really important. And I actually found really pleasantly when I finally made the decision to leave uh, a, a steady, safe job and work for myself, uh, I caught up with tens, uh, tens and tens of people, had coffee and they were all really supportive and uh, I got some good advice. I met some fantastic people who... Um, then, which then led on to more work for myself, other people who could I could partner with or gave me ideas on how best to do my work. So those networks and conversations were essential to starting my own business as well. Did you, when, when you transitioned from defence, did you make make an extensive plan to, to go ahead and uh, eventually start your own business? Uh, not to start my own business because that, that happened... 10 years later, it was only really when I had that realization that I wanted to help people be better communicators right. that I had decided, I decided I wanted to start my own business. Okay. Um, until then I was happy working for, um, yeah. for somebody else up until that point. Was, was it a major hurdle for you at all to make a transition or leave uh, an organization you were with for so long? Yes, it was because of the security and the, the um, certainty. I probably had the idea for, uh, actually, I had the idea for three years. I started my own company after two years. I was very fortunate that I was able to work outside hours on my own company uh, while I was still uh, working for another company. And uh, they allowed me to do that, which I was very fortunate uh, about. So I, for a year I did that and then I left and went out on my own. So it was a, it was a long drawn out process to make sure that I could manage the risk. I had put some money aside in case I didn't get any work for several months. Yeah. Um, paid my youngest son's last school fees. So I did those sorts of things. Okay. All right. So you did go ahead and you planned in a way that would, would allow you to potentially make mistakes and still uh, be comfortable. 
or at least survive any impacts to your personal income? Yes, yeah, it was a very risk averse <laughs> approach, yeah. um, but uh, it, it, uh, it worked out very well for me. What are some of the obstacles you've encountered since going into communications coaching? Have they been what you expected them to be? Yes, yeah, I, I, I think so. Uh, I'm aware that the work that I do is often seen as a nice to have. Also, the people who probably need it the most are the ones who realize it the least. So oh. I, I have okay. met a lot of people and I get, I get two responses when I pe tell people what I do. The one, the, one of them is I hate public speaking, as we talked about before. It's a very common response. The other one is my boss could really do with your help. And <laughs> unfortunately, the people who sometimes are not the best communicators think that they are great communicators. So for people to come on board and, and take my assistance and work with me, they really need to realise that they can improve and have a commitment to improving. And that's probably the biggest obstacle is that uh, sometimes the, the people who need my product are not going to buy it. So I, I, um, I don't always get as much work as possibly would, would benefit society, uh, but I, I'm definitely getting enough work to uh, keep me going and I'm very happy about that. By the sounds of it, uh, you've built quite a reputation up. Oh, when I, when I started this business and got out and having those coffee conversations or catching up with people that I hadn't seen, I was really pleasantly surprised that quite a lot of people who know me said, that sounds like perfect work for you, or you'd be really good at that, which wow. I thought I would be good at it because it's something I really enjoy and it's something that uh, I wanted to make a difference in the world yeah. with. But uh, to hear it from other people, it was really rewarding. So um, that, that, was, that was great. For people to say yeah. that, yeah, that sounds like the perfect work for you, um, was, yeah. It was great to know that. When you were in a, in a role where you were communicating regularly, did you feel that you had a knack for communicating well at the time? Ah, that, that's a really good question. And I, I don't know that I did. I think I was conscious of it. I was always conscious of uh, how I might communicate better and what's the best way to communicate with this person. Um, but I think that, I think that might be a benefit though. If you, if, if you take that approach that you can always do better, you can always um, learn, uh, then yeah. I think that's a healthy, a healthy thing. I, yeah. I didn't start doing this work because I thought I was the best communicator in the world. But I do know that I'm very conscious of how I communicate and I try and improve it all the time. And I share what I have learned about my own communications and what I've learned about how other people communicate. That's what I share with people. Yeah. Okay. as opposed to my brilliance. What sort of ratio of listening versus speaking would you do as a coach then? Oh, as a coach, it, mm. uh, listening is probably 80% of the, yeah. the time. Yeah. Um, it, it varies. And, and obviously, it always depends on who you're talking to and what they particularly need. Um, I have coached people where I've said maybe five, ten words in an hour. Yep. And then I've coached other people where it's more 50, 50. Okay. It just uh, d depends on what they need and the way that they communicate. As well. how, how important is body language in communication? And would you really say it's 80% body language, 20% verbal, or what are your, what are your views on that? 
Uh, there's, there is a figure which is misquoted regularly that actually says 93% okay. of communication is, is non-verbal. So not just body language, but also right. your tone. And only 7% is verbal. Uh, that's it's false. It's, it's a misinterpretation of, of two particular studies that are 50 years old, 60 years old now. When it comes to emotional content, the tone of your voice and your body language do mean more than the words you use. So uh, only in specific circumstances, and you would know that if you went up to someone and you said, how are you feeling? And, said, and they said to you, fine. That means something completely different to fine. <laughs> so yeah. it, in those cases, we will default to the way the person looks and how their voice sounds. So the important thing for communicating is that your body language and your tone of voice match the meaning you are trying to convey. So yeah. if you want people to think that you are confident and you believe in what you're saying, then show them that you believe in what you're saying. If you're sort of standing back like this and talking yeah. about something, then they're going to doubt the words you say. And that's where body language comes into, uh, comes into play is when it doesn't match the meaning you're trying to convey. And, and that's, I think that's the important thing for we thinking as communicators. Mm. But I wouldn't go into a situation and ignore all the words someone says and just look at them, how, they, how they're moving, yeah. because that will give you an incorrect impression. Yeah. So I, I, I don't like those percentage values because it always depends on, are you talking about something factual or something that's laden with emotion? Yeah. Yeah. The circumstances, some people just naturally are more comfortable standing like this with their arms folded. It doesn't mean they're not paying attention or they don't like you. It, it all depends on context. It's interesting that you say that some clients see it as a nice to have, but in reality, we, we wouldn't get a lot done without communication. Yeah, well, we're doing it all the time regardless. And, yeah. and um, I think, unfortunately, we're doing a lot more communicating than we need to because we don't take the time to have face-to-face -face conversations where we can to build relationships with people, uh, to listen to other people or simply just ask them, did you understand that? Do you have any questions? Yep. Um, often we'll shoot off an email or uh, these days it'll be a Slack message or something like that, yep. a text message. And then we assume the person will, has understood what we said um, mm. rather than getting out of our office, going around the corner, having a conversation and then following up with an email that says, okay, so just confirm we said we'd do this and now they know what it is you want them to do. It's so easy to get it wrong, isn't it? or offend people yes. these days and you could make a joke in an with an audience and it may not convey the way that you thought it would oh yes definitely and this comes back to the starting point of always think about who your audience is mm. and how they're going to receive what it is you're going to say yeah. rather than focusing on what it is you're going to say in your experience does your written script or plan um does it ever come across the wrong way and if so what do you sort of do on the fly to sort of manage that manage your audience if you if you sort of get it wrong i don't know if it's ever come across the wrong way but i have had uh, where people don't understand or, yeah. um, what i've said or maybe they didn't said what under, didn't appreciate uh something i said that it meant to be funny what mm. was funny and just okay 
a day. So they're probably the two, two circumstances. If you tell it, uh, um, say something humorous and it lands flat, then most of the time just ignore it, go on. Uh, and if people haven't understood something, that's where you need to be listening. Even if you're talking to an audience, pay attention to, to uh, the way people are looking at you. And if suddenly all their faces change and they go quizzical, then that's where you might add something or just simply say, you know, hands up if you didn't understand what I just said. And then you can explain it better. In your view, what does it take to be an expert communicator, negotiator at the highest level? Oh, um, I, I think... And I wouldn't consider myself an expert. So I, I think that's a pretty high okay. level. I think the things that, the, the things that would make you, uh, would take you to that level would be experience. So practicing in a wide range of circumstances with a wide range of people, because yeah. that is going to make you better at t- uh, connecting with the, whoever it is who's front of, in front of you because you've had a lot more experience in adjusting the way you speak and also interpreting the way people react to you. Uh, I think it's that, that experience, just going out and practicing as often as you can. And then there is the reflection, the learning part. So you can't just have that experience. You need to reflect on it and learn from it and continually be improving your own skills. I think those are the two things that would make you a, an expert in, in anything. Uh, plus reaching out and, and, and learning from what other people are doing. So research or uh, other people speaking about that particular topic. So those are the things that would make you an expert. Yeah. It doesn't seem like rocket science in the end, does it? It's just, you know, it's, it's the common formula and common thread you see with anyone that's successful. It's, you know, practice, experience, perseverance. Yes. I guess in that respect, why do you think there's some people that are perceived to have the gift and others don't in communication? I think that um, when it comes down to it, the fundamental thing that makes people better communicators is to not centre everything on themselves and to not be focused on what other people think of them or how people are reacting to them, but thinking about how you can share something with other people and shaping that to be something that they'll receive as we've been speaking about. Uh, I think that um, the people who are seen as better communicators have had a lot more practice of doing that and have got outside themselves and thought about other people. Whereas the people who are not as good at communicating are usually caught up in themselves. Um, They'll be kind of one or two spectrums. They don't say something because they're afraid to come out of themselves or they're continually talking because they think too much of themselves and don't think about other people. So I think there's probably those two ends of a spectrum, but they're, they're people who are not as good at communicating is because they haven't realised how they can share themselves with other people. Effectively. What level of importance is the right tonality and conveying that message when you're in a high-level meeting, which is crucial to say, you know, you're, it's a major contract or uh, a major acquisition? What, what would you say are the critical elements to remember to communicate in those area, in those situations? Well, I, I would bring it back to the, the fundamentals of yeah. who, is, who is it you're talking to, yeah. what, it is, what is it they are trying to achieve and how can you connect what you want to achieve with them yeah. and remembering the context. Yeah. So in this circumstance, a negotiation, the context might be more um, serious than uh, having a, a conversation in, 
a, a cafe, obviously. So you adjust the way you speak and the tone you use and the words you use to the people you're talking to in that particular circumstance. Yeah. And remembering that and doing preparation based on that, I think is the key. And that would apply to any circumstance, whether it is a negotiation or whether you're having a coffee catch up with someone you've known for a long time. We're going to lead into some rapid fire questions. These are questions designed to just allow the audience to get to know you better. So I'll lead into the first one. What was, what was your biggest ever setback or hurdle you faced in your career and how did you overcome that? Yeah, I've been very fortunate in my career. Pretty much had all the jobs that I wanted, uh, the ones that I went for. I, I, would, uh, I would say probably the, the only job that I didn't ask for in the Air Force uh, was the one that helped me ultimately to leave and go to consulting. So I, w I went on exchange to Canada. So I did a flying job in Canada. And then when I came back, I was sent to a ground job in Canberra, working in a project office, which was not what I wanted to do. Uh, but in that time, <laughs> I studied and did a master's in management. And I took that experience to, with me when I left and went consulting. So I guess I looked for things that I could do that still developed me personally um, and continued developing my career from that change in the career path that I had for myself in the Air Force at the time. Who is the most influential person in your life and why? Yeah, that's... Um, so one person I've been thinking about recently was a teacher that I had, Mr. Crilly, who is my grade five and grade six teacher in, in Melbourne. Um, he taught me how to draw a table. This is when we didn't have computers, so you had to draw everything. Oh, yeah. And he also showed me very creative skills. So he drew a picture, uh, painted a picture of the Jabberwocky from Alice in Wonderland on the wall of the classroom. So he taught me both these very, very practical uh, structured skills and tables and also showed me you could be creative. So I think that had a really big influence on me in my life. Is that something that you aspire to in the future being in that teaching role where you can pass on that knowledge to other people? I, I've been encouraged recently doing a few things to uh, think of the people at different times in my life that had influences. Okay. And also for some reason, I think that's probably a bit of a turning point in my life and a um, when I was 11, 10, 12 years old, I write a lot of poetry about that time too. So uh, I, uh, um, that's why he frequently comes to mind. And uh, I had recently been thinking about him in terms of people who have had an influence on my life. Nice. Interesting. What are three books or resources would you recommend for anyone out there at the moment looking to improve their communication? I... Uh, really um, strongly encourage people to read about storytelling and uh, a great book on that is by a guy by the name of Sean Callahan in Melbourne and it's called uh, Putting Stories to Work. It's an excellent book about storytelling in, in, uh, in a work environment. I listen to a lot of podcasts. One that I really enjoy is um, by Leanne Hughes called The First Time Facilitator, and she's based in Brisbane. I think the skills that you need to be a good facilitator, so whether you're facilitating other people's content or you're teaching people things, I think they're fundamental skills to communication. So the, what she has on her podcast, the people she invites on, gives you a lot of different perspectives on, on communication, learning, facilitating. 
Um, so I, I really enjoy that podcast. And there is a, a, a website called masterclass.com and it's a subscription service that gives you courses run by well-known people. So it has cooking and uh, art and acting and business skills as well. Recently did a course by Chris Voss, who was an ex-FBI negotiator on yep. negotiation skills. Yep. Uh, done poetry with Billy Collins, who was the poet laureate of the United States. There's a Steve Martin comedy course. So I really enjoyed that for going in and seeing those people who are sort of at the peak of their particular specialities, yep. sharing their knowledge, because all of those things are really good for performance and, and speaking and communication. So that would be three I could, I could recommend. What would you choose as your ring entrance music, Chris? <laughs> <laughs> um, I'd probably hope that I wasn't going into a ring, I think. <laughs> There's a, an English singer-songwriter by the name of Frank Turner, was the lead singer of a punk band in, I think, the 90s, early 2000s, and now writes and sings and writes his own material, sort of folk, folk rock. Yeah. He has a song called Get Better, and uh, it's about he's made mistakes, but the chorus is uh, we can always get better because we're not dead yet. Um, so I think that if I well, was looking for a motto, that I think that that would be a, a great motto yeah. uh, to continually strive to be better people and to be better what we do. So yeah. I think that would, and, it's, and it is pretty, uh, a bit of an uplifting chorus, a bit of a stadium yeah. sort of yeah. feel to it. So I think that would make a good ring entrance. Uh, if you could change one thing about yourself, what do you think it would be? Uh, well, it probably goes back to that, uh, I wish I wasn't entering a ring. Um, <laughs> I really, really dislike conflict. Um, I, don't, I don't like arguing with people. Uh, yeah. I don't like that, that tension of uh, rising emotions. Yeah. Uh, so that's something that I'm continually working on in my own communication is, is going into situations where there might be conflict uh, and being more comfortable with, with that and yeah. staying true to my core message, my core values, while still being able to relate to other people. Mm -hmm. I, I wish I was more comfortable with the, the possibility <laughs> of conflict with others because it's hard to avoid. It's an interesting one to navigate, I think, conflict. Yeah, yeah, definitely. If you could study a new subject with any expert in the world, who would it be with and, and what subject? I've always wanted to be a musician, I guess, and uh, I would love to be able to play the guitar better. There's a, another singer-songwriter uh, in the US from a band called Wilco. He's the lead singer. His name's Jeff Tweedy. Yeah. Um, I'd like him to teach me songwriting. I think that would be very cool. All right, this is a good question for anyone who's military or even ex-military. What are your thoughts on leaving the military to pursue your dreams? Who would you advise to leave? And who would you advise to stay? What are the caveats? I, I think um, there is definitely a uh, comfort and a familiarity inside the military. Um, you are with people who are all trying to do their best they have a common purpose uh, in protecting the country and the, the people here. Um, they are generally very, very good at what they do. And um, despite the times you might think that the people aren't, aren't trying very hard or that things are all messed up, um, when you get out into the 
commercial world or the other world, you find that it's just as common or perhaps even more common there. Yeah. Uh, I thought being in the military that we would uh, we were wasteful and, and because we didn't have that profit motive that they, you do in private industry, that often we, w- we would uh, be inefficient. And then I got into private industry and I realized that they're actually just as bad <laughs> in a lot of circumstances. So I would, I would say um, be very conscious that if you're going to leave the military, then you're going to leave that behind and you'll have to become more familiar with working in a slightly more uh, diverse environment with a, a wider range of people that definitely gives opportunities and it widens your horizons, but it also will become, will be disorienting to, to begin with. So I, I would just make sure people are aware of that and to, to determine if it's the right time for you to leave or it's a good time to leave. I would talk to as many people as you can. So talk to your friends who've been through that experience, reach out to people who um, may not be your friends, but could be your new best friends who have, who have been through that uh, there are quite a few people right now who have been out and got back in okay. or have been out and working in the reserves. So right. talking to them as well to get their experience, why they came back or yep. what, what do they find in the differences between working reserve work and working out in their, their outside world job. Right. Um, I would encourage people to do that. If you could choose three people to be in your circle of advisors to help you with major decisions, who would they be? Uh, well, I think Brene Brown would be a great person to have a conversation with. I think she uh, has a really um, unique, not, not so much unique, but she brings to light things that uh, a lot of other people haven't highlighted in relationships and, and communication and leadership. So mm-hmm. I think uh, she would be someone who I would really like to have as an advisor. There is a, uh, a guy by the name of Mark Bowden in Canada, who is an expert on body language, really, really uh, sort of, gregarious, outwardly going um, guy. He's uh, uh, quite an interesting person. So he, he would be somebody else that would be uh, great to um, have in that circle, I think. And, uh, and Michelle Obama, you go, I'll say somebody else who comes from a different perspective and uh, um, has had a very unique experience, but the whole time has maintained a, a level of grace and um, humility. I think that would be someone really interested to have in that circle as well. Last question, Chris, what advice would you give to anyone out there who is struggling to overcome their fears of public speaking? I would say you, you are a speaker. You can speak well. And it's the people that you see out there and you go, they're great speakers. I'll never be as good as them. Well, they're great speakers because they've spoken because they do have that practice as we were talking about earlier on. Yep. They've gone out and, and practiced. They've been given the opportunities to learn from their experiences. Yep. So you can be a good public speaker. You, you just need to take a bit of time, focus on it, get through that fear at the first few times, and then you yep. will become better and you'll become more comfortable with public speaking. Don't have to become completely comfortable with it. Yep. Uh, even I, like I still get nervous at times before I speak in front of other people and yep. that's very common. So uh, you, w- you will get a, become a better public speaker by focusing on it and taking time. Well, thank you for coming onto the podcast today, Chris. It's been great to have you on board and sharing some of your insights from your personal experiences. So thank you for that. Where can people find you? Uh, well, um, LinkedIn is a great way. I am regularly on LinkedIn and posting there. So, 
feel free to reach out and connect with me on LinkedIn and uh, send me a message. My email address is also on my LinkedIn profile, so you can also email me there. Uh, my, link, my email address is also available via my website, which is understood.net.au. So if uh, you go to that website, it explains the, the work that I do and gives you an opportunity to connect with me as well.